Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So, uh... There's a lot of things that we don't know. Uh, like, there's a lot of mysteries in life, things that we don't know, things that we might never know or never be able to explain. Like, what's at the center of a black hole? No idea. Like, we, we have no idea of what's at the center of a black hole, and we probably will never know. Like, we probably could never even make the instruments that could go into a black hole and then come back out of it. Like, we may never know what's at the center of a black hole. We might never know how slime mold thinks. Slime mold, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it functions and it thinks and it solves complex problems, but it doesn't have a brain. Like how, I mean, I know lots of people with brains that don't think, but I don't know anything without a brain that thinks. Uh, how does slime mold think? We have no idea. We may never know we may never know how Janko jeans became a trend in the 90s. Like, this, this is a great mystery to sociologists and anthropologists. Like, how is this ever cool? And, you know, somebody in the, the you know, mini service said uh, they were so glad they were too old for that. And I wish I could say the same, but I'm so glad that there were no smartphones back then because there's no photographic evidence. Uh, there's so many things that we don't know. Like, we'll never, never be able to explain the Trinity, like, and wrap our minds around that. The other day, I was talking to Kara and it was like bedtime. We were talking about Jesus and it was telling her how Jesus died and for all of the, the bad things, all the consequences for our bad decisions. And she's like, oh, they deaded him? I'm like, yeah, they deaded him. And I'm like, but don't worry, he came back to life. And yeah, three days later, God raised him back to life. And she looks at me, she's like, but Jesus is God. And I'm like, yes, um, Trinity. How do I explain this to a three-year-old? I cannot explain the Trinity. It didn't go great. <laughs> I cannot explain the Trinity to a three-year-old. There's so many things we don't know. And last week, Justin, Pastor Justin, he was talking about how sometimes we don't even, we don't even know what's going on in our lives, the situations that we're in. We don't even know what to say. We don't have the words to express what we're feeling. We just, we just don't know which is why I get so, so, so excited when we come across the things that we can know, right? There's so many things that we don't know and maybe we can't know, but when we come across the things that we do know, that makes me really excited. We're in this series called Wait For It, where we're going through Romans 8, this one chapter in the Bible that contains these amazing promises in there. And, you know, last week it talked about some of the things we don't know, but today we get to talk about something that we do know. And it's one of the, the probably most famous promises in Scripture. It's probably one of the most often quoted Bible verses in Scripture. In fact, for some of you, when you heard that we were going to do a series on Romans 8, immediately what came to mind for you was Romans 8, 28. And we're going to talk about Romans 8, 28, because here we get to see something that we know. The Apostle Paul, he's writing, he says, and we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good. We know that in all things, God works for the good. He looks out, he says, hey, hey, Junior, I, Junior, I don't know why your, your cancer came back. Rufus, I don't know why you, you study and study and study and you can't seem to pass the test. Phlegas, I don't, I don't know why you lost your job again. Andronicus, I, I don't know. I don't know why your depression won't go away. 
Julia, I don't, I don't know why your husband left you alone with your kids. I don't, I don't know the answer to these things. And, and these are real people that Paul is actually talking to. These are names of people that Paul addresses at the end of the letter to be like, hey, say hi to this person, this person, this person. Now, those aren't their real life situations. Like, I don't know if Junior had cancer or anything like that. But, but they're real people, which means they had their real situations. They had their real groaning. Those moments of, I don't know. Those moments of, why, God, is this happening? I don't know. And Paul comes in, he says, I don't, I don't know why. I, don't, I can't give you a, a detailed explanation. I don't know why this is happening, but I do know, I do know, and you can be certain that in all things, God is working for the good. In all, all things, in all of the things, right? It's hard to believe, like, really, Paul, in all things? In my diagnosis? In all things. In this financial crisis, in, in all things. My grief, in all things. In my loneliness, in all things. In all things, there's something good because God works. Our God works. And this is an important distinction. Paul does not come in and say, all things are good. If Paul said all things are inherently good, then there would be no reason for God to work. But, but our God, our God works, right? Our God works for the good. He works for it. That's, that's an important distinction. He's not just sitting back looking at a distance at the world as a, some sort of spectator watching you go through these things, kind of just saying, oh, yeah, like a TV show. No, 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 no. Our God works, and he's been working from the dawn of time. He has been working. You ever wonder why, like, work is such a big part of your life, right? Those days where you're, like, lying in bed, and you just really don't want to get out of bed, and you're just like, why do I have to go to work? Why? Why? You want to know why you work? Because you're created in the image of God, and our God works. Our God works, and he is working something good. He's a maker making something good good. He's the creator, right? And you go back to Genesis and God creates the world. And every time he creates something, he creates it and he steps back and he looks at it and he says, it's, help me out, it's good. Then he creates the next thing. He makes it and he takes a step back and he looks at it and he says, oh, that's good. He makes the next thing and he says, it's good. And then he creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve in his likeness. He steps back and he says, oh, that is very good. Because our God is a worker, and he is in the business of making good things. In creation, he made good things out of nothing. The, the theological term is ex nihilo. So he took nothing, and he made something good. But that's God as creator. God is also redeemer. See, God as creator makes good things out of nothing. God as redeemer, he makes good things out of literally anything. Anything. Whatever garbage this world throws at you, God looks at it and says, I can make something out of this. Lindsay and I, we, my wife, uh, we love to make stuff. We're kind of makers in that way. And one of the things we love to make is costumes. And early on in our, our costuming tradition, we made the decisions that we'd, we'd always start with like reused materials. So we go down to Savers in Hempstead. That's our thrift store of choice. And we comb through the aisles and we're looking for whatever we can find. And we're, we're just picking apart every, anything. And we don't use it as it is, but we're just we're looking for a button or a zipper or a piece of fabric or a color or something, a trim that we can use. And we go through it. And then we, we go to, the, you know, get all our stuff in a shopping cart and we go up to the line. And if you looked at our cart, like as we're going up to the line, you would question our taste. Uh, in fact, you would, you would question humanity because you look at some of these things and they're so grotesque and it makes you wonder like, 
you understand why somebody gave it away, but it's, you have to wonder who made this, right? And somebody bought this originally? Like you have to hope that maybe they bought it as a gag or something because it's so, so ugly, but we're thrown in our car and we're like cheering up as we're going to buy it, to pay money for this ugly thing, not because it's good, but because we see it, we say, I know just what I'm gonna do with that. I'm gonna make something good and I'm gonna be, make it beautiful. And Lindsay and I, we're, we're amateurs, like, we're, we're decent, fine, sure, but God, oh no, God, he can take all things, all things, and work them for good. So he looks at your trauma, and he, he doesn't say it's good. He looks at what you went through, and he says, this is evil, this is awful. He groans with you. And then he says, and I know just what I'm going to do with it. It looks like your, your weariness from just a life of being beaten down. And he doesn't say it's good. He says, this is, this is not good. This is bad. But I know just what I'm going to do with it to turn it into something good and beautiful. It looks like your, your grief, that loss, whatever that loss was. You lost a, a loved one. And you feel that grief. Maybe the loss was about a dream that it's never going to be materialized. Maybe the loss is, is about a child who, who you're never going to have. And God looks at that and he says, oh, this is, this is not good. This is not good. This is awful. This is ugly. And he groans with you in that. And then he steps back and he says, and I know just how I'm going to use it to make something good and beautiful 2,000 years ago, God looked at a, a tool of death so horrific that you, you couldn't even talk about it in mixed company. It was so awful, so grotesque that even the Roman Empire eventually outlawed it. And now, 2,000 years later, you look at a cross and you don't see a tool of death. You see a symbol of hope. Because God saw it and he says, this is not good. And he groaned with those who were groaning on that cross. And he said, but I know just what I'm going to do. I know just how I'm going to make something good and beautiful. And now we look to the cross as a symbol of hope and transformation. Because our God, he makes good things out of nothing. And he makes good things out of all things. He's a maker. And he's that good. But it raises for us two, two really big questions. Right? Two really big questions. Who's good and what's good? Who's good? Not as like who is good, but who's good? Like who's good is God working for? Right? And, and Paul answers these questions. He starts, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this is Paul's kind of somewhat unusual way of referencing the followers of Jesus. He's saying those who are in Christ, those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus, those who are, are Christians, God is working all things together for your good, your personal good. Not just some general good that's out in the world. It's not like he's trying to do the most good for, the, the best good for the most people. No, no, no. He is working all things together for your good if you're in Christ. I've shared with many of you, uh, back when I was in college, my mother was suddenly killed in a car accident. And, you know, that just, you know, kind of the whole family is just like, whoa, what just happened? And we, you know, we were pretty 
involved in our church and serious Christians. And we had a lot of Christians kind of come up to us. And I had people come up to me at, at the time and, and try to encourage me and say, you know, oh, you know, this is, this is awful. But, you know, just wait, because you're going to see how God's going to use this for good. Pro tip. Uh, if somebody's grieving, <laughs> that's probably not helpful. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't take offense to it, but some people might. Uh, but, <laughs> and, and in a sense, God did something kind of really cool and good through it. Uh, my dad had this friend, Scott, who my dad had been sharing his faith with Scott for years. But Scott was just so far from God, so far from faith, like so far removed even from anything close to faith. Like my dad was like his only connection to all of it. So, so much of so that uh, a couple of years before my mom passed, Scott's son had passed away. And uh, when, when Scott's son passed away, Scott asked my dad to uh, like do the funeral. But like my dad's not a minister. My dad's a salesman, right? So it's like, imagine your friend saying, hey, I want you to do the funeral for my kid because you are the closest thing to clergy that they know right? Like that's how far removed from God Scott was. And he was so disinterested in all of it. And then when my, my mother passed away and he watched my dad and the hope that my dad had and the way he grieved differently, something clicked for Scott. And it became the catalyst that ended up with Scott committing his life to Christ. And it was this radical transformation. And it was like amazing to see. And it's still going 15 years later. And it, and it came out of this loss. And so God did something good in that. Something really, really great for Scott. But, but at the same time, right, how is that good for my mom, <laughs> right? How is that good for my dad? Like, it's great that God did something good for Scott, but like at the expense of my mom and my dad and my family. Like, that doesn't, doesn't quite feel like what Paul is talking about, and it's not. I want to clarify this. All right, it was a good thing. God did a good thing, a general good thing for Scott through my mom dying. But that's not the good that Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying that God is working all things together for your good. What he's saying is that God, all right, God is working to ensure that you personally will be the beneficiary of your own misfortune. Right? I want you to understand how great a promise this is. Right? It's not that he's going to do something good. He is going to do something good for you. Something good personally for you. And a better good. God is going to work a better good in you and through you and for you on account of all things, including that, that misfortune, the misery, the pain, the agony, the groaning. We may not see it, we may not be able to explain it, but it, he is working all things together for your good if, if you are in Christ. If you love him, right? Those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And I mentioned that this is kind of a somewhat unusual way of referring to Christians, but it's very intentional. I think Paul's very intentional, all right? And he says, those who love him, comma, I want you to notice the comma, who have been called according to his purpose. He doesn't say those who love him and... It says those who love him, comma. You can almost make it a slash. So it's like those who love him, slash, who've been called according to his purpose. And, and the reason for that is he's actually saying the same thing twice. All right? So there isn't a group of people who love God and 
haven't been called according to his purpose, nor is there a group of people who've been called according to his purpose who don't love him. This is the same thing, right? To love God is to be called according to his purpose. And, and that comes down to this word called here. All right. I'm going to get super theological and heady for just a few minutes. And some of you are going to love it. And others of you are not. <laughs> so bear with me for just a few moments because there's some like really deep theological ideas and terms that Paul uses in this, this passage that I, I don't think I could do justice to what he's saying without spending a little time unpacking these things. So when he talks about us being called according to his purpose, this calling here is what uh, theologians refer to as effectual calling. Can you say effectual calling? effectual calling is different than God's general calling. All right, so there's a general call that God puts out in the world, goes to all people everywhere, come repent, follow me, trust in me, all of that, all right? And the effectual calling, it doesn't go to all people. It goes to those specifically who will believe. And with that, with the general calling, some people are gonna pick up the phone and be like, hey God, yeah, sign me up. And other people are gonna, you know, reject that call. But when it comes to the effectual calling, Everyone who God calls picks up the phone and says, amen, right? There's no distinction. And so this is a, a kind of calling where God is actually calling you out personally and you will respond to this calling. And so it, it kind of begs this question sometimes, like who's, who's choosing who? Did, did I choose God or did God choose me? And the answer from all of scripture is a resounding Yes. Uh, yes, God chose you. And yes, you chose God. And does that make your head hurt? A little bit. Uh, so <laughs> the next question that often comes up is, all right, so if God chose me and I chose God, who chose first? Like, did God choose me because I chose him? Did I choose him because he chose me? Uh, so to answer that question, let me ask you a question. Uh, think about when you made your decision to follow Jesus. All right, when did you kind of commit your life? When did you choose him? All right, have that in mind. All right, raise your hand if you did that before you were 18 years old. All right, keep your hand up if uh, you, you made a decision to follow Jesus before you were 18. Keep it up if you made that decision before you were 12 years old. Anybody? All right, we got it. Yep. How about anybody who made that decision before you were six years old? Anybody? We got it. All right, we're getting down there. Anybody who made this decision before you were born? Anybody who made this decision before the creation of the world? All right, I'm going to have to say God chose first, all right? Because uh, look what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, he says, those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. That's our, our word called again. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also Glorified. This is what is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And it starts with this foreknowledge. And when he talks about God foreknowing us, this isn't simply God like knowing about you in advance. If he was talking about that, I mean, it's God. God knows everybody and everything in advance. He's omniscient. He knows all. But when it talks about knowing in this, this capacity, it's talking about more intimate kind of knowledge. For instance, in Genesis, when it says that Adam knew Eve, do you know what happened to Eve? 
she got pregnant and gave birth to a son, right? This is a different kind of knowing that it's talking about. And the prophet Amos, when he, he talks about God knowing the Israelites, look at this in, in Amos. It says, you only, he's talking to the Israelites, you only have I God chosen of all the families of the earth. Now the, the translators, they translate it to chosen, but you know what the word is here? It's known. Literally, it says, you only have I known. God is saying, you Israelites are the only ones I've known of all the families on the earth. Did God not know the rest of the families? Of course he did. But it's talking about a different kind of known, which is why the translators translated to chosen. That God, he, he knew you in an intimate sort of way. It's almost like God in, in advance set his affections on you, which is why Paul in Ephesians, he actually just says it explicitly. He says, he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world, right? When were you chosen? Before the creation of the world. This is why, by the way, anybody watch The Chosen, the TV show? One of you? I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, why is it called The Chosen? Because that's who we are. God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so we get our second word, predestined as well, right here in Ephesians. That is the, the second link on this golden chain, predestined, all right? And it comes here back in our passage, those God foreknew, he also predestined. And this word simply means that God determined in advance. God made a decision in advance. He determined that he was going to do something. And what was he going to do? He was determined in advance that you, his, his chosen, were gonna be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God made up his mind. He decided in advance that you were gonna be conformed into the image of Jesus, but he didn't stop with just that determination. He brought it to fruition. And the next thing we get is that those he predestined, he also called. This is our word called again, right? His effectual calling. Those he predestined. And notice the, the kind of the fulsome nature of this. He doesn't say some of those that he predestined, he also called. He says, those, as in all of those, all right, this is all of those who were predestined, all that were chosen and foreknown, that he set his affections on before the creation of the world, were predestined, and then those he called. He continues on, those he called, he also justified. This is the work of Jesus on the cross, that he justifies us. He has, he has given us his righteousness. He's taken away our sin. He's justified us. And again, all of us who have been predestined, and foreknown and called, he has justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So you get this, this chain, this unbreakable chain, and nobody slips through the gaps anywhere along this chain. That anybody who God has set his affections on before the creation of the world, he is determined to conform you to the image of Jesus, and he has called you out effectually, effectively, and he has justified you, and he says he's going to glorify you. But notice, notice the tense here. He doesn't say he will glorify us. He says he's glorified us, which is really curious because just like a handful of verses earlier, Paul says that the glory that is to come, it, it's still to come. We're awaiting this glory. He says that this glory is going to be revealed as if it's not even begun to be revealed yet. And yet here he puts it in the past tense and he's not contradicting himself, but what he's doing is he, he's saying that this future glory is so certain, so certain that before the, the creation of the world, God has set his affections on you and he is guaranteeing that he's going to bring it to glory. 
There is no question that if you love him and being called according to his purpose, this is the end of the line for you. Nobody gets off earlier. And this, this can raise a lot of questions because, you know, we talk about all of these, these things happening, but we see that it all happened before the creation of the world. In fact, in, in Revelation, it talks about this book, the book of life. And it says that anyone whose name is written in the book of life is going to enter into glory with Jesus, with the Father. So everyone whose name is written in the book of life enters into his glory. Everyone, they're going to be glorified. And you want to know, you want to know when your name was written in the book of life? Look what it says in Revelation 13. It was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That, that your name was written in a book before the creation of the world. And whether it's a literal book or it's a symbolic or whatever, that's irrelevant. But somewhere along the way, God had, had made sure that your name was written down because he set his affections on you in such a way that you will enter into his glory. It's amazing. Now, it does beg the question, like, if God is the one who kind of is building this unbreakable chain, then who are we in all of this? Does that mean, like, we're not doing anything? Like, that God is just kind of dragging us along, that we're pawns or, like, game pieces in some cosmic game? And that is decidedly not true. And I want to go back to where this started, because here he talks about those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. And as I mentioned, it's two sides of the same coin, but you'll notice this one... This one, he's talking about your role in your salvation. This one, he's talking about God's role in your salvation because you and God are necessarily involved in your salvation. You did have to choose him and he did choose you. And it might feel like those two things don't go together, right? If, if God is gonna choose us and make sure that it comes to be, then you know, clearly that doesn't involve me, but that the scriptures don't leave that as an option. The scriptures paint this picture that you choose. Your love for him is real. Your faith in him is real. Your decision to follow him is real. Like you're making those decisions. You are doing that to your role in salvation. And God has his role. And even if that feels like it doesn't go together, that, that's one of the mysteries, right? That kind of falls into that category of things we don't know right up there with the Trinity and Janko genes, right? We, I don't know how, I don't know how these two things fit together, but scripture is so abundantly clear that you have a role in your salvation and God has a role in your salvation. They're both necessary in this. And right now, Paul references both sides, but then he goes and he focuses, he highlights on God's role and he builds this unbreakable chain and he's highlighting this and he's not talking about the other part, not because the other part's not important, Okay but he's highlighting God's part in here because Paul is not writing a theology textbook. Paul is writing a letter. And it's to specific people going through specific situations. People who are suffering. They are hurting so bad. They are groaning, right? There's this groaning, as Justin talked about. It's just this, ah, coming out of them. They don't have words to describe their groaning. There are people who feel weak, they're at the, the end of their rope. They're just hanging on by a thread and they don't know how, if they have what it takes to hold on. And maybe some of you are there right now. Some of you might've been there in the past. All of us will probably be there at some point in our lives where we just don't know if we have what it takes to hold on. This is where they were. And Paul's message to them is not buck up. His message to them is not stand firm. 
This message to them is not muster up whatever strength you can and bolster your faith so you can hold on and endure. His message to them is that God has wrapped you in an unbreakable golden chain. And in this moment, you might feel like you don't have what it takes to hold on to him, but I promise you, he has what it takes to hold on to you. And he is not letting that those he set his affections on before the creation of the world, he is going to ensure that you, you are going to experience his glory and nobody slips through the cracks. Nobody who is known here doesn't end up here. And that's your story if you love him and have been called according to his purpose. If you love him and have been called according to his purpose. He's working all things together for your good. That's, that's the who. Who's good? It's your good if you love him and be called according to his purpose. But we have to ask this second question is, what's good, right? It might seem obvious, like, oh, good is good, but no, it's not all that obvious. We're working on our, our new series for coming up for Easter, and uh, I sent out a few different postcard options. I sent three different things out to three different people, and would you know it, I got three different responses. Each one thought something else was good, <laughs> right? We have all sorts of different ideas of what's good and what's good food and what's good music. Not country, promise you that. Uh, <laughs> what's good parenting? What's good politics? Like we have a lot of different ideas of good. In fact, you go back to Genesis and Genesis in the garden, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat this fruit, it's bad. And then Eve eats it. But do you know what it says right before she eats it? It says she looked at it and she saw that it was good. God says it's bad. She says, I think it looks Good, all right? So there's no end to the amount of trouble that can come into the world when we have different definitions of what's good. So if we want to understand God working together for your good, we have to understand what he means by good. And it's twofold. It's that you're going to be conformed to the image of his son and you're going to be glorified. So you're going to, you're going to be glorified. You're going to share in Jesus' glory. And glory is a hard thing to pin down. Like, what is glory? It's kind of like out there. Uh, but it's not just glory in general. It's Jesus' glory. We're told that if we share in his sufferings, we're going to share in his glory. Jesus' glory. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. Uh, like, imagine if, like, somebody super rich, like a Bill Gates or an Elon Musk or, or a, a Rihanna. Did you guys know Rihanna's a billionaire? Like, she's, like, super rich because of makeup or something? I don't know. Uh, so some of these people who's, like, super, super rich calls you up and says, hey, I want you to come house sit for me for, like, uh, you know, a year. And uh, you get to live in my house, you get to eat my food, you get to sleep in my bed, like um, my staff will be your staff, everything that's mine is yours, you'll get to drive my car, unless it's Elon, then his car is going to drive you, but you, know, you get the picture, like all, you get to just be me for a year, they say, and I doubt that if they, they were to call you up and say that, that, like the first thing out of your mouth would be like, um, so your bed, is it, is it a Tempur-Pedic? Oh, can you give me a little more information? How many staff are we talking about? No, no, no. You wouldn't ask questions. You, just, you would know that what you're walking into is better than anything you can imagine. When we share in Jesus' glory, you can rest assured that it is better than anything you ever imagined. This is Jesus' glory. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. You get to share in his glory. You're, you're going to like it. Uh, all right, so that's, that's the, the one good. The second good, though, is that we're going to share in Jesus' character. Share in Jesus' character, 
right? We're going to be conformed to the image of his son, he says, and we're going to share in Jesus' character. And this, this is where a lot of the bad stuff, so God's going to work all things together for your good, good, bad, ugly, all of it. But the bad stuff in particular, you guys know this, becomes really, really important in shaping Jesus' character in us. You guys have been there. You, you might even know that, you, you might even say that some of the most character-shaping moments for you have been in times of suffering where God is refining you. And the author of Hebrews talks about God disciplining you. And Peter talks about God refining your faith as in fire. And we, we know this. And, and sometimes, and I want to emphasize this, sometimes, right, not all the time, but sometimes God is trying to teach you something through your suffering. And I want to emphasize the sometimes in that because I think very often, very often, we focus on this question when we're in those hard places, we focus on this question of, God, what am I supposed to learn? What am I supposed to learn? Help me to know what I'm supposed to learn. Because if I could just learn that thing, then maybe I get through this suffering a little bit faster, right? We want to expedite the process. And, and not that it's a bad question, but we get so caught up in asking this question of, God, what am I supposed to learn from this suffering that I think we miss the better question, the more important question, which is, who am I going to be in this suffering? Not simply what am I going to learn through this suffering when I get out to the other side, but who am I going to be? What am I going to look like? Who am I going to look like in the midst of this suffering? Because I I think there are aspects of Jesus' character that can only be produced and displayed in the context of suffering. And the reason I say that is because Jesus suffered. Right? He's a, a sufferer. And not just like accidentally. Remember the, the book of life that I talked about in Romans? right? Book of Life, that's the abbreviated title. You want to see the, the full title? Here's the full title. The book of, the life, book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. That's the full title. And when was this book written? Before the foundation of the world. Who's the, who's the Lamb? Jesus. So before the foundation of the world, right? Before sin entered into the world, before there was a world for sin to enter into, Jesus was already the Lamb who was going to be slain. He knew he knew creating the world. It wasn't like he created the world and then sin got in. He's like, oh, plan B, got to figure something out. No, no, no. He made the world knowing that he was going to offer his life as a sacrifice because there's, there's a part of Jesus' nature and character that is displayed through his suffering. In fact, Paul says that the glory of Jesus is displayed in the gospel In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the glory of Jesus is displayed in the gospel. And when Paul talks about the gospel in that way, he's specifically talking about the cross. The glory of Jesus displayed through his suffering on our behalf. There is something about Jesus' character that can only, only be experienced and expressed and formed in the furnace. Which is why Paul can say, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Why does he rejoice? Because he knows Christ is being formed in me, guys. Peter says, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ because your suffering isn't just suffering. You are participating in the sufferings of Christ. You're actually being formed into the image of Jesus in a way that can only happen in the suffering. And I don't, I don't know all the good that God was uh, you know, planning to produce for my mom when she was killed in a car accident. Like I, and I, I can't begin to imagine. God knows I don't. But here's one thing I do know is that 
Uh, my mom's life was lost, and as a result, somebody else's soul was saved. Mom's life lost, soul saved. Who does that sound like? It sounds a lot like Jesus. I'm not saying that my mom was sacrificed for him, but, but what I am saying is that in her, her last moment, what my mom got to do was she got to look like Jesus. And I know my mom. I know she would have given her life a thousand times to look that much like Jesus. That she, in that, that final moment, she got to suffer so that someone else would live. And I'm not saying that you know, your suffering is always going to result in somebody coming to faith. But I, I will say that when we suffer, we are joining with Jesus in his suffering in a way where we actually get to look like him in ways that we can't without the suffering. It's not good. It's not that the suffering is good, but what God is producing in you is awesome and amazing and beautiful. And this is what Jesus looks like, right? This is what Jesus looks like. And if you love him and been called according to his purpose, if you love him, then of course you want to look like him. Right? If, you, if you love him, then you do think that he is awesome and amazing and beautiful. If you don't, then maybe you just like what he gives you, what he offers you, and, and that's a good place to start. But you probably don't love him unless you think he's awesome and amazing and beautiful. And if you think he's awesome and amazing and beautiful, of course you want to look like him. Of course you want to look like that. And God is working all things together so that you could look like Jesus, even your suffering, especially your suffering. So I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And as they're coming up, I want, I want to leave you with this one question. This one question. It's not the question of what am I going to learn through my suffering? It's, it's a fine question. You could hold on to it. But the question I want you to ask is who are you going to be in your suffering? Who are you going to look like in those moments? Are you going to look like Jesus? And here's the best part. God has predestined. He has predetermined. He has decided in advance that you are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So you are going to look that awesome, that amazing, that beautiful. One day he is going to produce that in you. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to meet you in that place when you look like him. And you can, you can start that work now saying, oh, I want to be like you, to give all I am just to know you. And pray. Father, for those in uh, this room and who are tuning in online who are currently just hurting and, and suffering and groaning, Father, I pray that you and your mercy would just comfort them, remind them that you're holding on to them, that they don't need to be strong for you, that you're strong enough for them. God, and I pray that you would you would strengthen them, encourage them, that they might, might be shaped, even in these moments right now, in these worst moments, that they would look like Jesus in the midst of their grief and their heartache. For the rest of us, God, 
who might not be in that place now, I pray that you would continue to do that work now so that we are ready when we're in that place then that in the midst of our suffering, we would look like Jesus, the suffering servant, the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. God, and we look forward to the day when you take this work that you started before time began, when you set your affections on us, when you bring that work to completion. When we truly, fully get to share in both Jesus' glory and in his character forevermore. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.